And welcome to Taxing Matters, your one-stop audio shop for all things tax, brought to you by RPC. My name is Alice Kemp, and I will be your guide as we explore the sometimes hostile and ever-changing landscape that is the world of tax law and tax disputes. Taxing Matters brings you a fortnightly roadmap to guide you and your business through this labyrinth. In case any of you miss any crucial information or just want some bedtime reading, There is a full transcript of this and indeed every episode of Taxing Matters on our website at www.rpc.co.uk forward slash taxing matters. a little bit. For those of you who listen to the very end of Taxing Matters, you'll be aware that RPC Radio has another podcast offering, Insurance Covered, hosted by the brilliant Peter Mansfield. Say hello, Peter. Hello, everyone. Today, you get to experience Peter's brilliance for yourself because we're doing, as you might have guessed, a crossover episode. Here for this moment in history is Giles Hambly, a broker at Gallagher. Thank you very much, Alice. Giles was the perfect candidate for this crossover episode because he's going to be explaining how tax liability insurance works and how your business might benefit from a tax liability insurance policy. Giles, an Aussie, which I hope you, like me, will not hold against him, began life as a tax advisor before segueing smoothly into the world of insurance as a tax risk insurance broker. More importantly, and more interestingly, Giles only met his now wife parents two days before the wedding. Giles, how did that happen? You know, I'm glad you brought that up. (laughs) So basically, my wife and I met quite early on in the piece when I moved to London. Obviously, we're quite pleased and taken with each other and decided to get married quite quickly. There were some (laughs) visa timing concerns that threw a spanner in the works. And so decided to get married quite quickly on and my wife's parents were able to come over at the last minute to witness and that happened to be two days before the wedding so that was when I met them and had the opportunity to ask for their permission which thankfully they granted in short order. And it can't have been too bad because I gather you're celebrating your fourth anniversary That's this right. year? That's right, yes. Yeah, we have four years on the 4th of May. Congratulations. Great. So let's just jump right in, changing topic completely. <laughs> tax liability insurance. What is it? So essentially, tax liability insurance is there to cover the risk of a successful challenge from a tax authority for a position that, say, a company or an individual or a fund has taken. What that means is if you undertake a transaction or you sell a product in a certain way or just general tax planning, for example, there are rules whereby you need to meet certain thresholds to, say, qualify for an exemption, capital gains exemption, corporate tax exemptions, VAT exemptions, and so forth. Those rules are highly complex. And in many cases, there are uncertainties about how it applies to your fact pattern. And so typically what you would do is you would go and get advice from a tax advisor, tax lawyer, who would tell you, yes, we agree with the position you're taking. It should be okay. And the tax authorities should agree as well. However, in many cases, that isn't a guarantee. There's still a low risk that maybe the tax authorities will disagree with the position you've taken. If that risk crystallizes, then you can have a tax exposure, which is the taxes that you weren't anticipating to pay. It could be things like related interest and penalties. And penalties can be anywhere from 30% to 100%. So quite quickly, your exposure can really jump. 
And then you've got the problem of defence costs. That causes significant fees to arise. Tax lawyers, tax advisors are not cheap. To the extent that you need to go to court, of course, that's a whole other beast in itself. And there's inherent risk when you do that. And obviously, significant cost. So what a tax liability insurance policy is looking to do is looking to cover those taxes, the related interests and penalties, your defence costs, and what's called gross up. So to the extent that you are covered and you receive a payout from an insurer, if that payout is taxed in your hands as you receive it, the insurer will look to gross you up for that payment. So essentially bring you back to the whole position without having to worry about the tax in your hands. Thank you. That is a uh, very helpful explanation to a non-tax person like myself. Uh, from an insurance perspective, um, insurance is obviously there to cover risk and, and the risk of something bad happening. Um, and often for us non-tax people, we think of tax as something which is a certainty. Uh, so the, the risk element, as I understand it from what you're saying, the risk element that is being insured is that there is a transaction going ahead which will generate some level of tax, but it's not necessarily clear what the taxes are what the level of the taxes are, and that is the risk element that, that is being, in effect, being insured. Yeah, essentially that's right, Peter. We call it a tax uncertainty insurance policy. The rules are complex and unclear in many scenarios, and they have threshold tests. Maybe you qualify for an exemption. You're disposing of a business and you should get a capital gains exemption. Similarly, for things like VAT, withholding taxes, you name it, there's all sorts of exemptions out there. Those threshold tests are not always that Clear. For example, in a substantial shareholding exemption test, which is essentially that capital gains exemption, you need to have less than 20% of non-trading activities. What does that mean? HMRC guidance provides factors of how you measure that, what that entails. But it's also not clear from the case law what that really specifically means as a pound-for-pound basis or a factor-by-factor basis. So it can be quite easy to take a position where you think you're pretty comfortable and your advisor is pretty comfortable that the exemption should apply, but maybe there's extra factors that weren't clear at the time that the tax authority thinks are more important than the factors that you've taken into consideration. And in that sense, you've got an uncertainty there. That's essentially what it's looking to cover. It's looking to cover the uncertainties where it's just not 100% clear whether or not the tax should apply. So thinking about that scope of cover, what is included and what isn't included? It's the tax that could arise from the exposure for actually being taxable. It's related interests and penalties. Say you've got this historic tax risk that's five years old and HMRC, they are successful in challenging that position. You will have the tax that would have applied at that point in time and then five years worth of interest. Then you have things like penalties and penalties come in if the authority is able to show that you were careless in how you came to those conclusions and your filing position. And those penalties can range anywhere from 30% to 100% for, say, deliberate conduct. So very easily, you could double your exposure without effort. Then there's the other side, which is defense costs. Typically, you would have the cost of having to defend the inquiry. So the letter to HMRC explaining why you took a position and why a tax shouldn't apply, that could go to the first tier tribunal or further. And that has significant cost elements. So typically, an insurance policy would look to work in defense costs, say they assumed or estimated defense costs into that policy limit. Typically, there is a retention for those costs. So the insurer is going to expect that 
the insured or the client is going to cover the first part of those costs. You've mentioned there a couple of times HMRC. Is it just limited to UK-based taxes or is it global? Really good question, Alice. It's a very much a global multi-jurisdictional product. We see risks from all over the globe, US, Canada, South America, Chile and Argentina. Southeast Asia is very common. Australasia, Australian, New Zealand tax risks are very, very popular in the UK market. European tax risks are very, very common, Eastern European risks. There, there is a solution for a lot of these risks. And a lot of these risks work conceptually on similar types of rules. They have similar types of exemptions in their particular jurisdictions that operate on similar systems. So it's quite easy for a tax risk insurer to be able to see a risk, say, from Poland and say, oh, okay, I understand how the rules are supposed to work there, how the exemption is supposed to work there. And we consider that the position you've taken is a fair position. So we're able to insure it. They're able to do that because most of the specialist tax risk insurers, of which there are now over 10 in the UK market alone, they are all ex-Big Four advisors, ex-City tax lawyers with extensive experience of international taxes, of, of just general UK taxes, European taxes. So it's things that they've seen before and they can quite easily get comfortable with quite quickly. I'm very keen to kind of go through some of the practicalities of this to try and put it in context. Uh, if we can work through an example, um, starting at the very beginning, and then see how insurance is uh, involved, at what point is the insurance considered, what the processes are between, obviously, the insured and insurers. So what, what's a typical transaction where tax liability insurance is obtained? A merger, an acquisition, something like that? Yeah, sure. Mergers and acquisitions is a very common space. And typically what you will have is as part of the due diligence process, which is undertaken by the buyer, a whole bunch of different risks will be identified. One section of that, an important section, is the tax section. They may have historic risks. If those have been identified, they will usually be quantified. So the advisor who's providing the due diligence will determine how much is the risk going to cost and what do they rate the risk at? Is it a low, medium, high? Typically, what an insurer will look to cover is your low to medium type risks. And it's really that point about, is there a high risk that a tax authority is going to challenge your position successfully? If there is, then that's going to be a very difficult one to insure. If it's low to medium, that's very much on the table. So those types of risks will typically be looked to be covered as part of an M&A process because the seller will need to give an indemnity or a price chip or hold money over an escrow to cover the risk of that crystallizing. So it means the seller is going to be on hook for that liability for seven years for, say, breach of a tax indemnity. That's not great for a seller because they're thinking, well, we want to take our money and move on. And we're not able to do that if they're on the hook. So what a specific tax risk insurance policy can do there is look to cover that risk off and essentially transfer it from the seller to the insurer. From a process perspective, what you would do is you would see some supporting analysis for why it is low or medium and how they were able to quantify the risk. That information would be provided to a group of insurers. There's 11 in the market that we deal with regularly and 
to the extent that they have interest in that particular risk, we would approach those markets and essentially look for indicative terms and price. Sorry, Giles. Can I just chip in at that point? Um, presumably, these transactions are highly confidential and you can't just go off to brokers, insurers, I mean, 11 separate insurers and say, aha, this highly sensitive information is released to you. So how is that protected? Good question. And something that does come up quite regularly. Typically, there is a very strong NDA process. So a broker will sign an NDA with a client, whether it's confidential in an M&A process or whether it is commercially sensitive information, that a client would then essentially sign an NDA directly with the insurer or there would be a joint process with the broker and the insurer to ensure that the confidentiality trail extended the whole way to the insurer and their underwriting counsel to the extent that they want to go and reach out to their lawyers and say, what do you think about this risk? Can you give us a view? So confidentiality chain stays intact the whole way through. And that's quite a common process. So it's certainly something that the insurers and the brokers are very used to doing and can be negotiated pretty quickly. Sorry, I I think I interrupted you. I think you're saying that you were going to these 11 insurers and getting rates and prices for the insurance. Sure. So if we move back to the process, and as you said, the NDA can be part of that process where it's required. The insurers would then look to provide terms. So what would the terms of the coverage be? How broad is the coverage going to be? And is the policy looking to cover all of that or a specific issue? Then what is the pricing, which we call the premium, to get the coverage? Ideally, you have a risk that a number of insurers are interested in so they can compete. They all have different appetites of the types of risks they want to see, the types of jurisdictions that they're comfortable with, uh, the, the size of risks. There's a really important point there around the broker's knowledge, understanding the different markets, understanding what are the different trends and the appetites for each insurer. And so obviously from that perspective, not wanting to plug myself too much, but that's an important part of the job. Being very close to the insurers, being very close to the market, it is a fluid market that is constantly evolving. And what was very popular, say, last month may become less popular next month. There's only so much capacity in the market to cover risks. Those are the kinds of considerations that can come in. And then it's about knowing, in which case you need to approach a different market. What sort of limits of indemnity are we talking about here? Typically, the range of tax risk insurance is 500k to a billion pounds plus. You can go less than 500k, but a lot of the insurers have minimum premiums around your 40 to 50k mark. So that being the cost of the insurance policy. There are a couple of insurers that mentioned that they don't have minimum premiums, but I'd be surprised to see it going much below your sort of 20 to 30k mark. Part of the process, and this is an important point to make at this time, is that once you receive indicative terms and pricing for the policy and the client or the insured is happy to move forward and actually go and try and get the policy formalized, what happens is called an underwriting process. And that's where The insurer is chosen. The insurer then essentially takes that information. They either review it in-house or they provide it onto their underwriting council, which are typically lawyers or law advisors, to work out what the parameters of that coverage should be and potentially whether or not the pricing should change. But typically, they are not going to deviate from the pricing that's given at that point in time. So that is a process where they essentially will gather more information to get more comfortable with the risk, to understand the parameters, what the exposures are, and so forth. That is something that takes typically one to two weeks, but it can be done on a truncated timetable. You can get an underwriting situation done in probably three days, two days, 
at a very big push if need be. And so that shouldn't be considered an impediment to getting the insurance. And so what sort of rates are we talking about? Uh, What percentage? If I was buying £100 million worth of risk, what sort of rates would I be looking at? Yeah, so typically tax risks go for 1.5 to 6% of the limit. Basically, it depends on the nature and complexity of the risk as to what the cost will be. It also will depend on things like jurisdictions. If the jurisdiction is, say, a little bit racy, it's going to creep up more towards that sort of 6% level. If, for example, maybe the risk is already under active inquiry, then that can increase the cost. And that's where it starts to fall into what we call contingent risk market, where you've got a real risk of litigation or litigation is pending. That becomes more expensive. That's where you're going to start looking at prices around sort of 10 to 15%. But again, depending on the nature and complexity of the risk. So you mentioned earlier that there are sort of 10, 11 tax liability insurers in the UK market. And of course, these are global policies. So when the insurers are looking at the risk and the reasonableness of the tax position and all of those kind of technical questions, obviously, they're going to consider the relevant tax laws. To what extent is that done from a UK point of view? And to what extent is that done from the local jurisdictions point of view, wherever that tax risk might be? Typically, what the insurers will look to do is they will try and put on that jurisdictional hat. How the UK rules operate from a tax perspective is only relevant to a UK tax risk. They will also look to engage local councils to the extent that they need to. They have strong connections with their advisors who have global connections, and they regularly do that. A lot of it's run out of the UK because it's a very sophisticated market. It's a very well-established market, but it's certainly not a case of if they don't understand the risk, they're not just going to try and open up the book themselves you know, for a tie tax risk without getting a view from their counsel out there. And does that jurisdictional hat flow through into the risk appetite that's applied to the risks? Yeah, this goes on to the parameters of what you can get covered and what you can't get covered. Typically, tax liability insurance is not there to cover aggressive tax planning or what we call here transactions that are notifiable under avoidance schemes. Those issues are not going to be covered. But what is considered aggressive, say, from a UK perspective, might not be aggressive in the US or might not be aggressive in Canada or multi-jurisdictionally. So it's really a question of what is considered aggressive in that particular jurisdiction. If it's not considered aggressive, then it could very well be an insurable risk. But it's not whether or not thinking from a UK lens uh, is something aggressive. So I think that's an important point because there are many conversations I've had with advisors you know, outside of the UK. And when I think about what the planning they're talking about or the transaction that's been undertaken or how it was structured, and I think, wow, that sounds pretty racist. When I'm talking to them about it, I'm saying, aren't you worried about things like avoidance rules? And like, the avoidance doesn't apply to this type of planning. If anything, it's actually incentivized or encouraged. It's what's intended by the legislators. So that's an important point to keep in mind, but it certainly shouldn't be thinking do we look at it from a UK lens? No, we look at it from a jurisdictional lens. Um, you've, you've already mentioned the fact that the underwriters are themselves tax experts uh, and therefore they feel comfortable with these issues and uh, assessing risk. Um, and where they need to get local expertise, they will get local expertise. But, but let's say a risk eventuates and there is an exposure. What, what happens then? Are insurers obliged to just pay up 
uh, and allow the insured to contest the tax if they so want to, or, or do insurers have a control clause whereby they can make decisions about whether the tax is challenged or not? So typically, that'll be part of negotiating policy and the parameters of the policy. In certain situations, you may have things called advanced tax payments where they need to be paid immediately, and then you essentially pay now, argue later. So if you negotiate a policy where you think that's going to be an issue, then you would look to get that put in place so that the insurer is on the hook as when the advanced tax is due. What an insurer will generally have as part of their policy is conduct rights or similar to what you're saying with the control clause, where they have a say on whether the tax is going to be disputed and then kind of how far you need to go to dispute it. So, I mean, they are not looking to say step into the shoes of the insured and conduct the dispute themselves. That would be a little bit unusual. It's possible, but that's not typically what they'd be looking to do. They'd be looking to basically have reasonable comment and a review right over the plans that the insured's lawyers or tax advisors have. Now, on the flip side of that is to the extent that it could be settled. I mean, tax issues aren't usually sort of settled HMRC. Once they take a point, they go the whole way. But outside of that, to the extent that they could be settling it, an insurer will want to have a view on that and provide comment. And that's something to be done, you know, a collaborative way. They're not looking to try and make things difficult or try and take points that are just not going to work. It's very much done as kind of a team effort. But of course, they will have rights and they will have a say. Just on that point that you just said there about settlement, does that mean that the insurer might take a view on whether or not ADR might be applicable to this particular type of tax risk? And would they seek to include that in any policy documents? You know, that's a really interesting question. And to be fully transparent, that hasn't come up before. I have not considered whether or not ADR could be a a separate solution, in which case you, you could probably come up with a better and less expensive result. I'm sure to the extent that ADR put the insurer in a better position and effectively put the insured in a better position where it could absolutely be included in the policy. I don't think it's something that I've seen frequently included in a policy wording, but you very much look to include that. I think that kind of leads on to the point that these policies are bespoke policies. They're not your off your shelf type of policy. They are a case by case basis and they are designed for that particular risk, for that particular fact pattern. So You could have room to say, okay, well, in this particular situation, alternative dispute resolution could be a good way of dealing with this. We want to get that included in the policy. Let's talk to the insurer about it. And the beauty of these types of policies is that you get to work collaboratively with the insurer to design it so that it can cover the risk in the way that suits you. And obviously, it needs to suit the insurer too, but you can work together. It's not a rigid set of positions. They are quite flexible. So I think that can result in a very good position for the insured. So that's one of the benefits of having this type of insurance. What other benefits might there be? From an M&A perspective, as we touched on, things like being able to ring fence your specific issues. If you've got a policy to cover off the issue, then you're essentially taking that issue off the negotiating. So from a seller's perspective, there's that point about saying, we want to achieve a clean exit. We want a nil recourse structure where we're not going to have to pay out anything. If you've got a problem, you're going to take it up with the insurer. That's the same thing for the specific tax risk. To the extent that they are insurable and you can cover that off, that's great for the seller. From a buyer's perspective, there may be the point that they're getting insufficient protection under the sale purchase agreement 
or they may need to satisfy their lenders with the protections they're getting under the SBA. So the insurance policy can be used as a way to essentially provide that comfort. Maybe they don't have a good credit rating. Maybe they're not going to stay in existence for very long after the sale. Maybe they're going to run off to the Caymans and never come back. Who knows? (laughs) Knowing that you've got, say, a Lloyd syndicate in the UK that's AAA credit rated, or you've got someone in the US that's standing behind that risk, I think is a very important point. The other, I think, areas of interest is most corporates will have some form of historical tax risk somewhere down the line. They will need to essentially provide for it or be aware that they may need to pay out at a certain date as long as the exposure stays live and being able to mitigate that risk with an insurance policy. So what we call risk transfer solution is a very attractive option. If you can get a certain level of certainty from your advisors that there is a low risk of this exposure arising, but that doesn't mean there's no risk. For what is effectively cents in the dollar when you think you're 1.5 to 6% premium, paying that as an upfront cost to get the certainty that even if the exposure arises, you can make a claim to the insurer and that's where it's going to be covered. So I think it's a very clear, effective tool and it's one that's being utilized more and more. Unfortunately, tax codes are extremely vast and difficult beasts even (laughs) for tax experts to try and wrap their heads around. And it's just not clear how they always apply to certain fact patterns. So to be able to get that certainty with that policy, it's, yeah, as I said, a pretty attractive option. And has there been much growth? Have many people been taking that option up? Tax risk insurance has been around, I think, as a product for a little over 10 years, maybe slightly more. But I think over the last two or three years, it's really exploded. Part of that is driven off the back of M&A and warranty indemnity insurance. Warranty indemnity insurance is there to cover unknown risks, whereas the specific tax risk insurance policy is to cover an identified tax risk. So where private equity houses and funds and so forth that are looking to move very quickly, they want very clean negotiations. They don't want liabilities hanging over their heads. They want what's called a clean exit those sorts of policies have become very popular. Obviously, with the rise in private equity over the past couple of years and off the back of that specific tax risk insurance has similarly exploded. So just to give an idea or some stats, I was speaking to some of the insurers not that long ago, maybe a couple of months ago, and they were saying they're seeing regularly 20% year-on-year growth in submissions. The submissions they're seeing in numbers are 500 plus per year. So that means that insurers seeing, you know, about 10 risks per week. Those risks could be anywhere, exposures anywhere from 500k to a billion pounds plus. So there's a huge amount of interest and it's growing and growing. And if you think from a multi-jurisdictional perspective for large corporates with international operations, transfer pricing is a huge problem for them. It's a huge risk area and it's very difficult to manage that risk area. There are insurance solutions for those risks. So now that people are becoming aware that you can actually manage it through that insurance policy that they just were not aware of outside of an M&A context, that's, I think, one of the big areas of growth that we're going to see and we're starting to see now. And what sort of trends are you seeing? Are there, I don't know, um, are there trends in relation to furlough, for example? But what is it that you're seeing? The majority of risks that you're seeing at the moment are typically transactional risks. You see where it's not clear whether you should have been charging VAT on a particular service or a particular product. That's a very common type of risk. Withholding tax risks as well are very popular. So, Where there's a question about whether or not you had substance in a particular jurisdiction to be able to get what's called a double tax treaty rate. So let's say UK and France, for example, they have a double tax treaty and you are 
paying out dividends from your French subsidiary to your UK entity. The French tax system will essentially charge you a tax rate on that dividend. As a result of the treaty between the two countries, that rate may be reduced from, say, 15% hypothetically to 5%. And so there's a material difference there. Now, the question might be, do you actually qualify for that rate? There's all these different types of tests. A lot of the time, the local authorities will want to see certificates. So they'll want to see that another jurisdiction has confirmed that they agree that you're eligible for that rate. And a lot of companies may not have time to get that. So that can be a situation where you can get an insurance policy because the insurers are saying, yeah, we agree with the position you've taken. We think you're absolutely right and you're definitely eligible, but you have an exposure because you don't have a withholding tax certificate. That's a very popular area. When you think about things like furlough risks, I mean, that's a new area. Furlough risk, furlough tax risks. I think, Alice, we were talking about this a little while ago. There's umpteen thousand inquiries into how furlough payments have been taken and grants. And of course, the risks that are associated with that are your employee tax risks, so your PAYE and your national insurance contributions, because those still very much apply to those grants. And that can raise significant costs for an employer. I haven't seen personally many inquiries on that end, but I think that's something that will definitely be a growth area because the rules on that area are quite new. And so there isn't a huge amount of guidance about how to apply them. Um, but you still have an exposure because we just don't know how it's going to be interpreted. That's where I think a policy could work quite well. And one final substantive question for me is, uh, are there any public policy or ethical issues with this type of insurance? Because Obviously, you know, tax is payable by a taxpayer. And well, are there any issues, ethical, public policy or otherwise, around you know, the fact that the liability on the taxpayer is being shifted over to insurers? No. The fact of the matter is that the policy is not looking to cover off aggressive practices. It is looking to cover uncertainties in the rules. So where someone is trying to essentially achieve a tax advantage where it was not intended by the rules, then you're going to find it pretty challenging to get that position insured because the insurers are just not looking to backstop that kind of behavior. There needs to be commercial reasoning for what you're doing. There needs to be commercial reasoning for why you're getting the insurance and doing things like aggressive tax planning to get benefits that weren't intended and you're just getting that position insured. So the insurers taking on that risk is not going to happen. So from my view of the way HMRC would see it in play is that it's a commercial point about risk management. It's not about trying to take advantage of rules or trying to get arbitrages or loopholes. It's really a case of managing risks. How do we do that commercially if we can't get a deal done? The other side of that is that a lot of insurance policies are taken out to cover clearance. So typically you would go to a tax authority to get clearance for a transaction where maybe there's a little bit of uncertainty about how you've done it and you want the tax authority to say, we're happy with what you've done. We aren't going to look to challenge this. You're fine. Here's your piece of paper. Because of COVID, there's been huge delays in tax authorities being able to respond quickly for providing clearance, which means that in certain situations and transactions, transactions haven't been able to go ahead because they haven't got the clearance. And then there's concern about who's covering the liability if it goes wrong. That's another area where the insurance policy can come in and say, let's go and get insurance in lieu of getting clearance because the insurer is comfortable with the position. If anything, that's a helpful tool for HMRC because that means they might get less applications and with increasing pressure on resources. That's only a good thing. And where it's trying to cover positions that you know are not looking to take 
take advantage of loopholes and not looking to create arbitrages. I think it's only a good thing from that perspective. From the HMRC perspective, I think one of the key points is the product's been around for the last 10 to 15 years and there haven't been any concerns raised. So HMRC are very much well aware of it. As I said before, as long as you know, you're not looking to do anything aggressive, you're not looking to essentially engage in points or get a benefit that wasn't intended, then there shouldn't be any concerns. Finally, what advice would you give to businesses considering whether or not they need tax liability insurance? Uh, so before we talked about whether or not it's in the M&A context or outside of an M&A context, if it's in an M&A context, as I said before, in most deals, there's going to be historic tax risks. So the question is really who wants to take on the liability, whether or not they're happy to do so. That is an area that is very heavily negotiated between the two sets of tax lawyers and lawyers love to negotiate things, but maybe a client might want to move through it quickly and cleanly and just get it out of the way. And so from an M&A perspective, it should be looked at almost on all deals, but it may not be appropriate on every deal, but it certainly could be useful. From outside an M&A context, I think it's a case of understanding what are your tax risks that are on your books? What kind of operations do you have? Where do you see your pressure points? Is it employment taxes because maybe you have lots of contractors? Is it VAT because you've got all different types of products being sold in all different types of jurisdictions and they all have different ways of doing things? If it's multi-jurisdictional, is it transfer pricing? Um, Almost all multi-jurisdictional businesses will have some form of transfer pricing risk, whether that's on services, on products, on intra-group financing. That comes up all the time. So where those risks exist and whether that's a case of working with the advisors to either identify them or being aware with your in-house tax managers and your treasury team where they arise, that's where you can start thinking about, can we get insurance to cover off the position? I think the critical point for the clients to understand is that it doesn't cost anything to go and get indicative terms and pricing. So if they just want to make an inquiry and work out whether there is a solution available and what it's going to cost and what it's going to cover, that doesn't cost them anything to do that. I think that's an important point for businesses to be aware of. This is not simply a case of you going to have to go and incur a lot of fees to go and find out that you can't get insured. That's just simply not the case. Giles, thank you so much for your very user-friendly explanations of tax liability insurance. I hope that gave a quick and useful list overview to our listeners. And thank you, Peter. Do go and have a listen to Insurance Covered for more great insights into the wonderful world of insurance. You can find Giles on LinkedIn. If you have any questions for me or for Giles or any topics you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please do email us on taxingmatters at rpc.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. As ever, a big thank you goes to Josh McDonald, who does all of the work pulling each episode together. Our music is from musical genius Andrew Waterson, who also produces each episode. And of course, a big thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. If you like Taxing Matters, why not try RPC's other podcast offering, Insurance Covered, which looks at the inner workings of the insurance industry, hosted by the brilliant Peter Mansfield, and available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, and our website. If you like this episode, please do take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. And remember to tell a colleague about us. Thank you all for listening and talk to you again in two weeks. 